Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's brilliant, insightful panel, joining us from the quietest linen closet in Maine is Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you. Thank you. I'm having so much FOMO up here. <laughs> because returning to the Roundup here in our Washington, D.C. studio is Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for social policy and politics program at Third Way, and an alum of President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, welcome back. Thanks. It's so much more fun in person. It really, really is. Next time, Lucy, we'll see you here. Now. <laughs> so, on this week's Roundup, Texas Democrats flee the state, breaking quorum and risking arrest to prevent the state house from voting on Texas's anti-democracy bill. Joe Biden's warning about the threats to American democracy Senate Democrats reach an agreement on a $3.5 trillion, trillion with a T budget deal with wide ranging implications, and it doesn't need a single Republican support if the caucus is united. And in our segment exclusively for Politicology Plus subscribers, we look at the emerging battle lines in the Republican Party, as evidenced by the shenanigans at CPAC and one ardent Trump defender's warning to a bifurcating GOP. You don't want to miss this one. So subscribe to Politicology Plus right now by going to politicology.com or click the link in your show notes. Let's dig in. Monday morning, over 50 Texas House Democrats fled their state to Washington, D.C. in order to deny the state house a quorum and thus preclude voting on an elections bill that Democrats deride as suppressive. And indeed, the bill would ban drive through and 24 our voting options. It would enhance access for partisan poll watchers. It would prohibit election officials from mailing out unsolicited applications for mail-in ballots and make it more difficult to vote by mail as well. You may recall just a few weeks ago when Texas House Democrats did the same thing in the final days of the regular legislative session, prompting Governor Greg Abbott to call in a special session that now is without a quorum, at least on the House side. And although a few Senate Democrats joined their House colleagues, the Senate still has a quorum and this week passed the bill 18 to 4 on a party line vote. Not to be understated here is the risk these Democrats are taking. So Governor Abbott has pledged he'll move for their arrest upon their return to the state. And here is Texas State Representative Ron Reynolds in an interview with Charles Blow on BNC News. How long are you prepared to be away? from Texas? As long as it takes, by any means necessary. I'm willing to, to sacrifice. I have a, a wife and children. But if it means protecting our democracy, then that's what I signed up for when I raised my right hand and uh, uh, chose to take this oath of office to fight for my constituents. I don't serve at the pleasure of Governor Abbott. I serve at the pleasure of my constituents, many of whom are African-American. And by the way, Charles, if you didn't know, Texas is home of the largest African-American population than any other state. And I'll be damned if I'll let Governor Abbott or anybody else disenfranchise people of color. We stand on the shoulder of giants and we've come too far to turn back the clock now, not on our watch. Lene, this was an extreme option. Um, in the eyes of these lawmakers, it was their only option. Um, 
because they have no other tools to defeat this legislation, basically. So before we get to the risks and the political implications of this, how are you thinking about their move? I mean, I think it just shows you how hot the temperature is around these issues within the Democratic Party. I was thinking about, you know, a few years ago when we saw a another um, happening in the Texas state legislature get national attention, and that was Wendy Davis around mm-hmm. abortion restrictions. And it seems to me that in the past, most of the time when Democrats have gone to these kind of extreme measures, it's been around issues like that. It's been around social issues and you know, these kinds of voting issues didn't really raise raise people's uh, attention in that way. And so I think, you know, we're really seeing a, a sea change in um, in the awareness in the Democratic Party and within its activists and its legislators about the importance of voting, of voting rights, of um, stopping these voting restrictions. And I think 10 years ago, these issues were seen as really nerdy. They mm-hmm. weren't something that you would have, uh, you know, seen on CNN. And now we were seeing people, you know, literally go to jail in order to protect them. Lucy, I have to admit, I was just, you know, I just wanted to stand and cheer when I saw this happen because of the national attention, right, that this is bringing to to the fight that seems not to be the number one priority, at least in in Congress for, for, for congressional Democrats. So how, first of all, how do you see this as a strategic move? Do you think it's going to be successful or ultimately backfire? Because the consequences are that Republicans are really laying into them for not doing their jobs. Well... I think that how it does or doesn't serve Democrats really kind of depends a lot on Republicans' reactions. And so far, I would say that in Texas, Republicans are playing right into their hands. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, went on TV after this happened and said that, you know, when they return, he's going to arrest them. And and that sounds like something that happens in not a democracy. Now, I mean, of course, I understand why we have rules about sort of quorum and asking lawmakers to be present. But I think it's pretty clear to most watchers what's happening here. And so Greg Abbott saying, I'm going to go use the power of law enforcement to detain Democratic state lawmakers. And let's also be clear, this is not a regular session. This is a special session that Greg Abbott called for the express purpose of passing bills that suppress voters' access. So. You know, what a wonderful gift to Democrats by Greg Abbott on a fundraising (laughs) play um, from a GOTV perspective, a thing that I think gets lost a lot, but that we should think about when we think about states like Texas and think about it in the context of other states like Georgia or Arizona, is that Texas is not rock red. Texas is a state that Democrats were worried about in 2020. And this is going to be such a major, major activation moment for folks who see Texas Democrats on the one hand trying to maximize access to the polls and preserve voting rights, and then Texas Republicans on the other talking about how they're going to arrest their Democratic counterparts. So I think in the short term, this is really good for Texas Democrats. I think that you know it, it keeps the drumbeat up on this issue, and I think it could have really big implications federally. A a former Cruz spokeswoman, Alice Stewart, who's a a talking head, she said something like, let me get this straight. You know, Democrats think it's okay. They want to end the filibuster, but they also um, think it's okay to sort of abandon quorum. It's kind of like, you know, 
Texas Democrats are giving federal Democrats a masterclass in what today's landscape is, which is you have to fight for what you believe in by any means necessary because you are not operating in a landscape or a paradigm where Republicans are these kind of polite business as usual. Let's go have a a steak dinner and and work this out. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I totally agree. I mean, obviously this is a, this is a brilliant move from a PR perspective. It's a brilliant move from a fundraising perspective. They're going to raise a ton of money uh, from people, from grassroots donors who support this, who recognize now, which like these issues are not any more nerdy, arcane things, right? This is this, like Susan Del Percio mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Democrats are look looks like they may make this a defining issue of the midterms. So we'll get to President Biden's speech in a minute. Um, but Lene, I want to hear from you how you think this move creates more pressure on congressional Democrats to do something. And and then by extension, does it put more pressure on President Biden? And we'll get to his speech and the filibuster and stuff in a minute. But absolutely. I mean, I think the contrast is is pretty obvious. <laughs> and for people who really care about this issue, you you know, you see the bravery of the Texas Democrats and then you see, um, you know, Joe Manchin meeting with those Texas Democrats and saying to them, I can't you know, I can't vote to change the filibuster. And it just doesn't really feel like you have a moral high ground at that moment. Yes. <laughs> so, I yes. think that's difficult, um, you know, not to mention the fact that the couple of senators that are at least vocally against um, changing the filibuster are both white. And, you know, I think we we all know that a lot of these laws and these lawmakers, um, they impact people of color and they are people of color. So I think that um, that visual is very stark. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, you know, we had a vote um, in the Senate and uh, and it was blocked by the filibuster. And then the talk about S1 and HR1, the For the People Act, kind of went away. And it, it was overtaken by, you know, 50 other things in the news and COVID and everything else. But this really put it back on the radar again. And I think, you know, there's a big push to um, make the Senate vote again before they go away for August recess, because there's there's a real understanding that as soon as the states start redistricting, um, we're not going to have time to implement the For the People Act if we don't do it, if we don't pass it this summer. So, you know, it really is crunch time for federal Dems to get this done. And if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, this this was the perfect moment to um, to put that fire under their feet in order to say, like, you, you have to act. You cannot see the bravery of these Democrats and then say, "Mm, I don't know, Senate procedure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is, we'll probably get to this again in the next segment, but one of the, David Becker was on the show recently and we were talking about the For the People Act actually and, and how terrified he is at the state of democracy. This is a guy who was a prosecutor at the DOJ and their civil rights division, has devoted his career to upholding the, the principles of American democracy. And he noted that actually when it comes to the For the People Act, it didn't actually have 50 Democratic votes in the Senate to begin with, which meant the filibuster is kind of a moot point when it comes to that bill. So I get the talk about passing that going away, subsiding, because just, you know, logistically it can't happen because, you know, well, Joe Manchin, Exhibit A, right? But something. We also have the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, 
which is also not moving. That's right. Why? And, and well, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act also has um, at least one member of the Republican caucus in support of it in the Senate. So, yes. um, you know, there is bipartisan support for that one. But I think, you know, it's not a case of we can only pass the For the People Act or nothing, right? And right. and we've seen this on so many issues. Democrats um, have been willing to take half or, or three quarters of a loaf on a lot of things, and they would be here too. And I think, you know, Joe Manchin was trying um, in good faith to negotiate something that he could support. And I don't think that it would take too many changes yeah. in order to to get there. So there there is a an election reform bill um, that would that could get 50 votes in the Senate. And that's how we get back to all of the filibuster reforms and, and the pressure around that. Because, you know, if you made a couple of small changes to the For the People Act, then you get Joe Manchin and, and then we're off to the races. Yeah. OK, Lucy, just to close the loop on how this is playing out. Right. Obviously, it's going to help rally Democrats. It's good for GTOP. It's good for, you know, media coverage, fundraising. Should should Democrats at all be worried about the impression it leaves on swing voters even, you know, uh, this far out from the midterms? Or are we just in an era where, like, memories are so short that this isn't going to be even a blip on the radar when it comes to, you know, November 2022? Well, I do think that memories are short, but I actually think that Democrats are, in the last couple of weeks, they have done a pivot that is very effective, which is that they have started talking about these challenges, not as sort of like you know, we're on the defensive and these are things going wrong, but going on the offensive, right? Like these challenges are why we must make sure we retain a majority and grow a majority in, in 2022. And so, so I know that we'll keep talking about that, but, but I think that we're actually really signaling and we're seeing it from Biden and we're seeing it down the line that, that this is a moment to go offensive, not sort of be up against a wall saying, so sorry, we can't make it happen. So I think that's a pivot that, you know, Ron, you've been at the forefront of talking about, uh, you know, needing to be made and, and that a lot of people in the kind of never Trump wing have talked about and advised Democrats. And so I think we're starting to see that strategic move in a way that could really be very effective. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good segue. Let's go to, by the way, I should note for our listeners, if you want to learn more about the efforts to suppress votes in the legislatures and you want to really dig into the details of what these things would do, I highly recommend you listen to our episodes with David Becker from July 7th and Theron Johnson from April 7th. Those will give you a lot more meat on the bone if you if you really want to understand how these, how these measures could impact um, turnout. So let's go to Biden's speech. Uh, on Tuesday night at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, President Biden issued his most urgent warning yet on the threats to our democracy posed by Republican efforts to change voting laws. Let's listen. So hear me clearly. There's an unfolding assault taking place in America today, an attempt to suppress and subvert the right to vote in fair and free elections. An assault on democracy, an assault on liberty, an assault on who we are, who we are as Americans. For make no mistake, bullies and merchants of fear, peddlers of lies are threatening the very foundation of our country. It gives me no pleasure to say this. I never thought in my entire career I'd ever have to say it. But I swore an oath to you to God, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. 
That's an oath that forms a sacred trust to defend America against all threats, both foreign and domestic. The assault on free and fair elections is just such a threat, literally. I've said it before. We're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Since the Civil War. The Confederates back then never breached the Capitol, as insurrectionists did on January the 6th. I'm not saying this to alarm you. I'm saying this because you should be alarmed. I'm also saying this. There's good news. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be, for real. We have the means. We just need the will. We just need the will. So that's the piece of this that I that I want to zero in on because I think everybody is familiar especially listeners of the podcast are familiar with the threats that Biden is talking about probably overjoyed that he made it a centerpiece of this speech that he's being so vocal about it I mean this is something that I wish had been the number one thing you know as he as he came into office the very first thing that he tried to get done I understand the uh you know the need to address the pandemic and the economic recovery but this is for me, the most important thing that we can possibly do to, to ensure that this whole experiment gets to keep going. Some of the most insightful um, analysis of this speech, I thought, was the take that Biden's really talking to his own party here. And Lene, I wonder you know, how you read this, um, the criticism that he's gotten from liberals for not pushing hard enough on uh, the issue. Did he go far enough in the speech? Because the one thing notably absent was any mention of the filibuster and any mention of a will to reform it. Correct. And I think we've seen that very clearly from both Harris and Biden. They've said over and over again, the Senate is in charge of its own rules. The Senate is in charge of its own rules. We're talking about two people who used to be in the Senate. So they, um, they're talking about their friends and they're not going to get involved in, um, you know, in, in an inter-party battle about whether to change those rules. And I think they've made that really clear. And that's to the frustration of many, not just folks who care about the For the People Act, but folks who care about immigration reform and gun safety and uh, the Equality Act and all the other things that have, you know, majority support in in the country, but, uh, you know, 40 senators can stop. So I think I don't expect um, them to engage or change their position. They've they've been pretty consistent. Um, And I also think that they know that their calling for the Senate to change the rules isn't going to change Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. Joe Manchin is a person who decides you know, what he's going to do based on what Joe Manchin wants to do. He he is not going to, um, you know, take uh, instructions from anybody. So I don't I think actually, you know, it would be great to hear him engage more. But I, I just don't think that that's how this is going to work. Um, so there is a lot of frustration that it took this long to engage. Um, and I think this White House has been very uh, specific about sequence, wanting to sequence things, wanting to save their political muscle for their priorities. Um, and right now they're focused on a bipartisan infrastructure bill and a ginormous reconciliation bill. Um, and and I think that this was 
they they had to do something because they have been so quiet on it and they haven't, you know, used the bully pulpit to to focus on this issue. Um, but it in the end, it's not really going to change much. Lucy, he called again for the passing of the For the People Act, but one word missing, obviously, filibuster. Is this, you think, as far as he's going to be willing to push on this? Well, Joe Biden is a master negotiator. Uh, you know, I think that what's happening on the infrastructure side of things shows what a master negotiator he is. Both he and Harris are alums of the Senate themselves. And I think that Joe Biden may have in mind kind of what we've had in mind as we've talked about this, which is a narrowed down version of what we're currently thinking of as the For the People Act in, in some other bill form. The For the People Act is, is really a very broad bill. It has some really, really core voting rights provisions. And then it has a lot of, sort of um, pieces that may be priorities for a lot of Democrats, but feel a little bit less related. So uh, language ar around ethics and lobbying reform, uh, language around um, corporate um, campaign finance and creating uh, creating uh, punishment for bad actors that then sort of funneled to campaign financing. So I think that those are worth having a debate on, but they are quite secondary to the kind of core voting rights stuff that is really, really on display here. And so by pushing for the For the People Act in this speech, what Biden may actually be getting at is a narrowed down, slimmer form of this. And that's an effective strategy. Uh, so that will be a lot harder for sort of someone like Manchin or Cinema, even maybe a couple of Republicans to oppose. But it also goes back to that strategy we talked about, about putting Democrats on the offensive um, against these kind of intransigent Republicans. Lene, there's one thing I want to just highlight, which is which is something that everybody should be <laughs> really, really troubled by. There was this terrific piece in The Atlantic um, that, that noted the, a WAPO poll, uh, that had among Trump supporters, nearly nine in 10 Americans, Trump supporters think democracy is under threat. That number among Democrats is only six in 10. Hmm. And the nine in 10 Trump supporters who think democracy is under threat, guess which way they're pulling <laughs> the opposite direction <laughs> that the six in 10 Democrats are are, are mounting this lackluster sort of push to actually get something done. So when we, just for our listeners, put that, you have to accept all of the all of the rhetoric, all of the coverage, and all of the actions of both Senate Democrats and Biden and what he's calling for through that lens, because the the there is a very vocal uh, crowd of Democrats within the party who are trying to get something done because they recognize this threat, and 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 they're just up against sort of party inertia, right? Is there any other way to put it? Like, is, and is this why we're probably not going to see anything happen, at least at the federal level? I don't know. I'm I'm still, you know, on on board with the idea that we might get a slimmer bill, as as Lucy okay. said. So so you know, I'm I'm not as pessimistic as we won't get anything done because something is better than nothing. Oh, right. Yeah. Anything all, here all is better. Things than are better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> any any component piece yeah. of the For the People Act that got passed would be great. Yeah. And um, unlike something like immigration reform, it doesn't all have to hang together. You could pass it as you know 400 separate little bills. That right. would be totally fine. Sneak if, them in here and there right. whenever. Like, you're 
you're Stick voting for something, something popular, else. just yeah. like, just, you know, <sighs> um, yeah, put it on the defense authorization bill. That's what we always <laughs> like to do. And that's, that's the must pass legislation <laughs> that you're always like, what can yes. I put on the defense authorization bill? Yes. Um, <laughs> so yes. we, you know, we could do something like that, but, um, the, for example, the piece that just sticks out to me is the partisan gerrymandering piece, yeah. right? I mean, like there is, um, very, very happening right now <laughs> in a district near you <laughs> happening now. Uh, and, um, it's about to turn Nancy Pelosi's majority into a minority. And, you know, when you look at people who study all of the, um, redistricting, say we're going to lose, Democrats are going to lose between five and 11 seats just through redistricting. So yeah. now we're trying to win back the majority in the house, not keep it. Yeah. Um, so that component itself would be incredible. And that's something that, you know, a wide range of people support, including every democratic Senator. So I think we, we might get something done, but w- what I think is interesting about that poll is I bet it would have looked very different when Trump was in office. Mm-hmm. And so this is a question of, you know, it's the same way that if you ask, um, hardcore Republicans and Democrats, like, is the country on the right track? Yeah. That number switches completely, um, on January 20th Yes, <laughs> because it's about who's that's, in charge. And right. so is democracy under threat? Well, it sure was on January 6th, but right now Joe Biden is like getting vaccines in people's arms and negotiating a bipartisan infrastructure deal. And so it feels a little less under threat. Now, I don't think that means it's not, but it just makes you feel better because you've got a president who's actually doing his job and people who are actually following the law in charge. So I wonder if that's where we see, you know, if we had if we had asked that question in in December, I bet it would have been flip flop. That's totally a fair point. Um, Okay, before we leave this topic, I want to take us on a little bit of a detour here. And I'm really really interested in what both of you think about this because for I think for our listeners it would be helpful to separate um the anti-democracy bills and we use that umbrella term all the time into just for right now talking purposes uh two different buckets and one of those has to do with voting rights and the other has to do with what happens after the votes are cast right and here is something I was wondering this morning just dawned on me. Why haven't we seen um, anybody, and I'm not looking for a concrete answer because I don't think one is possible, but why haven't we seen any um, reporters, investigative journalists, um, media, why hasn't anybody been asking the question, um, can we quantify exactly what the voting rights legislation, the anti-voting rights legislation, the the um, the, the, the suppression related bills, the ones that are making it more difficult to vote. Why aren't we seeing any kind of a quantification of either what that would do to turn out in specific locations and what it would mean in terms of state legislative wins or losses and congressional wins or losses? Um, and it's a question I, I want to know the answer to. And if I'm a political director sitting in Texas, for example, and I'm looking at the potential impact of these, I am looking at a map of districts that would or would not have been in play based on the 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 numerical impact of these types of 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 anti-vote um measures. So there's that that's that's one question. But then on the in the other bucket, what I wonder is why haven't Democrats really zeroed in on what I think is actually the far more grave threat to democracy, which is Republicans covert move to swap out the authority 
who gets to decide what happens to votes after they're cast. Who gets to count, like Biden said, who gets to count the votes? Who gets to count whether or not your vote counted? Not did you get to the polls and did you cast your ballot, but the elections officials who have, for as long as we can all remember, been nonpartisan, good civil servants who just want to count fairly and accurately and tell you what the result was, to partisan hacks who are more likely to do the bidding of the legislature, which we know Republicans control in most states. So that to me is like, sorry, I'm on a rampage here, but I really want to know the answer to both of these questions. And I think um, the, I, I suspect the answer to the first one is more likely to be underwhelming compared to the consequences of allowing Republicans to change who gets to count the votes and potentially overturn an election. And I think the next thing that we're going to see in this evolving, you know, in the decay of American democracy is Republicans are going to successfully overturn an election. At some point, at some level, they're going to successfully do it. And and I think that's the next, you know, big moment to happen. So, okay, I will get off my soapbox and well, you're definitely, Hear what you guys think. You're definitely right that that is the graver threat. It's, um, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter how many people you turn out if the person that's counting the votes is throwing them in the trash. So, yes. So I think, you know, that's that's something we need to focus more on. I mean, my uh, my guess about why it's not getting as much attention is that it is. First of all, it's a newer problem, right? Like it, this wasn't the case. Uh, we we've had fights over voting rights for a long time. We haven't had fights over we're going to overturn elections um, until much more recently. <laughs> and I think Democrats haven't caught up with that. And and we we just don't believe that that could actually be true. Scandalized, they're clutching their pearls. Well, yeah. Let them go and <laughs> fight back. Get on the offense. Sorry. I don't know. I'm interested, Lucy, in what you think. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to disappoint anyone by this answer because it's kind of like inside baseball. Kind That's of like okay. That's why our listeners are here. <laughs> here, for the, here for the glum, another glum take. Uh, it, but it actually relates to something Mike Madrid said a couple of weeks ago, which is stop giving your money to candidates. Mm. And it has to do, I think a lot of it has to do with the donor class, which is that the donor class has not been properly conditioned to the moment that we're in. And so, and I, I do some work with some democracy reform groups. It is very hard to get the donor class focused on the long-term ball game. So if you're going to a major donor and saying, Hey, really need to get serious about the election clerk race in whatever the hell County in whatever the hell swing state, or gosh, uh, big money donor in Silicon Valley, New York, wherever, really need to get you focused on the Secretary of State race in Arizona. The county they're clerk in Nevada. That, right. They're yeah. not conditioned that way. And they're conditioned to federal races. And, you know, I've long been focused on the states. So I will say that, like, I'm sort of like an evangelist for thinking about the states. But this is all, I mean, forget the For the People Act, forget the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, less so actually that one, but in general, <laughs> all of this, no, I mean, yeah. I don't mean forget no, 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 it. No, no, no. We, we know, we it's know, like, everybody this understands. This is all about yes. state legislatures. This is all about election officials. And these are like, these are races that are not on our radar. You know, David Becker, whom you've talked about and I, who I know has been on, who's such a sort of wealth of information on this, he highlighted once when we were on together, 
what's going on in Georgia with Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State that we've heard a lot about there. Brad Raffensperger is getting primaried by Jody Heiss, who's a, a Trump election truther, right? Forget what the Georgia legislature has already done. Brad Raffensperger is going to get beat in a primary by Jody Heiss. And the person that we're counting on to do the right thing, which Raffensperger did in yeah. last fall, yeah. is, is going to be replaced by a, a Trump loyalist, you know, big liar in chief. And so part of it is just that we are really conditioned to focus on what's going on federally, but what's happening in the states is where it's at. And it, and it's not even just who's counting the votes. It's who has authority to stamp the just the sort of outcome once it's happened. I mean, as you say, you have legislators talking about basically taking away power from the voters and just overturning the results. So I think a lot of it just has to do with, with where our focus is. I mean, the actionable items are Find out where your state lawmaker stands on this stuff. Start paying attention. Yes. Start going to, you know, it's really fun to lobby at your state legislature, but start getting involved at the grassroots level because, I mean, that's where this is happening. And and when you have some momentum, like there's some momentum in Texas because of this big statement that Texas Democrats have made. But when you start getting some of that momentum, the, the kind of powers that be the media, the donor class other people who can really have a big impact for better or for worse will start paying attention. I hope. <sighs> okay. Those are two very good answers to, to a, a, a pop-up question, but like, uh, okay, just to close this segment out. And I don't know that there's a simple answer to this, Lene, but is the, is this hard for Democrats because a, they're, not good at it. B, it's a coalition that's more difficult to hold together than the Republican Party. C, both. D, neither. Uh, I think I always do the difficult co coalitioning. I mean, I think we, when when you go back to, um, you know, to look at the State of the Union, for example, you see the Republicans on one side and they are all interchangeable looking. Yeah. And then you yeah. see... The, in word and in appearance. In, in all ways. <laughs> and I can never remember most of their names because there's too many, like, I think there's more of them named Ted than there are women in their caucus, right? So... It's a little difficult. Um, and they all wear the same suit. So th there's certainly like more coalitioning to hold together. I also I also just think that um, Democrats kind of trust the system. And so we're like, well, the system's going to work. You know, it's like it's why we didn't pay attention to ju judicial nominations for such a long time, which is a hobby horse of mine that I could go on a very long rant about um, because we're like, well, the judges will do the right thing because like that's what judges do. And now we're like. Oh, this is not good. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> now we're I mean, paying attention. But I think same thing. We're like, well, the secretary of state will surely they'll certify the results. Yeah. <laughs> and we got perilously close to not. Wait, 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 that. wait, 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 wait. You 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 mean he might not? Right. Like and, and we're like, wait, wait, wait. That was only that one time, right? Because that was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> because we believe yeah. the system will work. Yeah. And, and I think we need to question that assumption. Yeah. Shake the Pollyanna-ness <laughs> out of uh -huh. the Democratic Party. Yes. Uh -huh. This is the, the stakes are high. You need to get tougher. Okay. Uh, $3.5 trillion. Wednesday night, news broke in Washington 
that top Senate Budget Committee Democrats are in alignment on a spending plan with a $3.5 trillion, that's trillion with a T, you guys, like a thousand times bigger than a billion. $3.5 trillion price tag. Democrats have one more chance, one more chance this year to pass spending legislation through the budget reconciliation process, which means they don't need to overcome a filibuster. They just need to keep all 50 members of their precariously held together coalition, a caucus, on the same page. This would be additional spending on top of the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal that has received Biden's nod. Some of what's included in this package, billions of dollars in new spending for elder care, home care, child care, pre-K, paid family leave and medical leave, housing programs and other education safety net programs, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in climate-related spending, including clean energy tax credits, funding for electric vehicles, uh, and a $300 billion expansion of Medicare to cover dental, vision, and hearing. Um, all of that is not to mention that weaved in here is immigration reform. <laughs> so, And also, <laughs> money isn't real, apparently. So, um, Lene, uh, first of all, can you like give us a very brief primer on reconciliation? Because for, just for our <laughs> listeners, like, what exactly does that mean? And we know it doesn't mean it needs a filibuster, but why does it mean that this is hopeful that this could actually happen? And Sure, but yeah. first I'm going to say I yeah. told you so because do you remember? <laughs> do you remember a couple of uh, the last time I was on? Yeah. one of my uh, keep watch on it stories was that immigration reform was going to be in the. Oh bill. my god! <laughs> <laughs> so just saying. Uh, Cue that clip. One of the things that uh, I've been watching this week is a leaked document that came out from uh, from Senator Bernie Sanders, and it is comparing uh, what he is thinking about putting in a reconciliation package compared to what Joe Biden proposed in the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. If a Democratic committee chair is suddenly arguing, well, we can't do uh, immigration in this bill. Well, yeah, you can. Bernie Sanders put it in there. So I think it really opens up uh, a conversation about what is this reconciliation package going to look like? Um, But the uh, so reconciliation um, just means that there are certain bills, um, the budget, the budget bills that have special rules that you can't filibuster. But it also means that you can't put a lot of legislative language in it. Mm. It has to be mostly about the budget and not about legislating. So we get really creative around that. Um, You know, for example, immigration reform (laughs) and trying to figure out how we make that mostly about about the budget budget? and not about (laughs) policy. But um, and then it goes through this whole process in the Senate um, where uh, that's called the bird bath, um, because the bird rule is that rule that says you need to make it really about the budget and not about policy. Correct. Uh, another West Virginian who had a, a lot of influence in the Senate, similar to our current situation. Also so, was a Klansman. Yeah, so, so there's, there's that. that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so we'll, if we can hold all Democrats in the Senate together and as well as get Nancy Pelosi's caucus to be all together in the House, which is easier said than done as well, because the if the ideological span of the Senate caucus is wide, hers is just hugely wide. It's exponentially yeah. more wide. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, from AO to Connor Lamb is is also a, a difficult uh, needle to thread. But if they can do that, then they can pass it with just Democratic votes. Okay. So, Lucy, there are a number of humongous hurdles uh, to overcome to get this package, even though it is, you know, feasible because of this reconciliation process. Um, one of those hurdles goes by the name of Joe Manchin. Um, 
uh, also, all these provisions are going to face, uh, as Lene, you mentioned, like the scrutiny of the Senate parliamentarian, right, is part of this reconciliation process. And that's the person who gets to decide whether or not, is this legislative language or is this budget language, right? Um, and then there's the politics of the infrastructure deal sort of sitting in the wings, right? Because that's also really expensive. And this is even more expensive. So like, as as I think as a parent, my jaw hit the floor when I saw the top line figure. Do you think Democrats run the risk of looking like reckless spenders to moderate voters? Or is this what voters who elected Democrats in 2020 want? And or, and, or maybe a third option, do none of those things actually matter because money isn't real? Um, I think all of that and none of that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so when you talk about reckless spending, I think you're sort of alluding to this broader context of, sort of there's been a lot of news about this this week is the economy overheating. You have people like Larry Summers um, coming out and saying like, you know, the, the Biden administration, Larry Summers, former Obama administration economist, famous economist saying- Clinton you know, economist as well, Clinton, secretary treasurer. Right, yep. Right. Women in science, gaffe machine. Uh, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> TB, yep. TBT. Yep. Um, uh, so you have people like Summers saying all of this spending, proposed spending is going to cause the economy to overheat. We're going to see huge inflation. We are seeing sort of inflation that is a little bit um, higher than otherwise explainable. Yeah. And, and there are explanations, but and I'm certainly, I'm not an economist, so I can't get into this in, yeah. in great detail, but questions, questions, questions about, you know, what the Fed will do around interest rates. How is that going to play out? Could we have kind of a snowball effect? So I think some of the conversation around reckless spending gets to so-called reckless spending gets to where we come down. And, and Yellen and Powell have both said, you know, we're going to continue to see some inflation throughout the year. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is the economy coming back faster after COVID. A lot of viable explanations. So that's kind of one context. I think a lot of it is around how messaging is managed around that and also just what happens. But some of this actually does go to, the reason there's less worry actually is related to what we just talked about in the last segment about keeping coalitions together. And it's also why I don't think that Manchin is really going to end up standing in the way. When Lene talks about judges, the reason that conservatives and Republicans have been so focused on the judiciary in another time is that the judiciary is how you stop big spending bills and new programs. And the reason that Republicans depend on judiciary in that way is because Americans really like new programs, actually, right? Mm -hmm. It's why Republicans <laughs> mm -hmm. will not, TBT to another reconciliation episode, Republicans will not uh, ever repeal the Affordable Care Act. And they all go out and campaign on the individual mandate and like the, pre, not the individual, excuse me, pre-existing condition and other components that are really popular because once you get paid family leave, once you get Medicare expansion, you name it, Medicaid expansion, people like it and you can't peel it back. It's a one-way street. And so Manchin is going to go along with this because this is going to be really popular in West Virginia, right? And the the fight, I think, isn't really between Manchin and the Democratic caucus. It's between the kind of progressive wing of the Democratic caucus and the center that Schumer and Pelosi hold. 
Yeah, I think that's totally right. But on the money doesn't matter anymore thing. I'm joking. Well, uh, well no, we'll get to know, it. We'll but get a little bit, little bit more into inflation, but go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to talk about, yeah. you know, the inflation piece. But what, what I just want to remind our listeners is that this bill is paid for. This bill is mm. 100% paid for <laughs> by okay. uh, raising the corporate tax rate, not even to where it was in the Obama era, only partially repealing what the Republicans did under right. Trump uh, the tax with, cuts. The, with the tax cuts for corporations. So it's it's not even going back to Obama levels of taxes. And we're, we're covering that. And then by raising individual tax rates on people who make over $400,000 a year. Now, those things are also really popular. So this is not this is a bunch of popular spending paid for by a bunch of popular tax increases. And so in my mind, that's all good. Yeah. And yeah, it's a it's a jaw dropping number. But if think about what the number was that the Republicans spent in their tax cut, mm -hmm. they just we just you know, don't we don't talk about it that way, but we're only undoing part of what they did. And we can buy three point five trillion dollars of really popular really stuff, stuff with that. Yeah. OK, so then is it is your take that this is not a messaging bill in the same way that uh, the, the the For the People Act has been called a messaging bill and that it's like, here's everything that we want to do and like wink and nod internally. We, we recognize we're not going to get all of this. Uh, we can trade some of it away to get something done. Is that what this $3.5 trillion package is? Or is there broad consensus like that they're, this is what we're moving forward with? I think this is what we're moving forward with. I'm not sure that we're going to get a full $3.5 trillion. It might get whittled down. Um, but I do think that we're going to get most of what's in there because it is popular. And um, and there's a lot of constituencies that want a lot of those things. And, you know, the biggest criticism of it that that I've seen so far is that it's not big enough. You okay. know, like okay. the left is saying it's not okay. big enough. <laughs> but they don't have as much leverage because they're not going to not vote for right. Right. $3.5 trillion in new programs. And stuff their constituents because want. Because they want $6 trillion. Like, right. that's not how that works. Right. <laughs> I okay. do think that, that you know, we're going to get most of this done, including the immigration piece, which I'm more optimistic about actually getting immigration reform done through reconciliation than I have been anytime since 2013 wow. when we had the bipartisan vote. Wow. Okay. That's, we should actually do a whole separate thing on that, but uh, okay, my last question on this bill in particular, before we move over to a brief sideshow on inflation here, is does this bill um, diffuse democratic energy for getting something done on protecting democracy? Does it take the focus off of that? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think we can walk and chew gum. I think okay. the, we always want to do I mean, I would like to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would like the walking to happen first yeah, <laughs> then, yeah. the, then the chewing of the gum. Yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> the order is off. But um, no, I think that um, so timing wise, as I said, if we don't get something on democracy reform yeah. done this summer, it's not, it's not happening. Happen. Right. So there is the problem of the timing on the Senate floor. That's the only way in which this interferes, right? Because the budget process is lengthy. They do what's called a votorama, which means any senator can put up any amendment that they want to in the history of time. And it takes literally all night. And if you have worked on these bills, like you basically have to stay in your office all night and then have a mimosa in the morning and then get going again. I remember like, those it's, days. It's insane. <laughs> so um, so that takes a lot of time. And But if we get a deal on democracy reform, they will make the time yeah. to, to 
Okay. Pass it. Go ahead, Lucy. And if I think, you know, in the infrastructure plus reconciliation bill piece, there is a lot of discussion of who votes first. There's this race to the August recess. Does the Senate vote on it first? Where does it originate? I think in, in, in this scenario, if, as Schumer intends, the infrastructure bill gets voted on before the August recess, that really signals that there is an ability to have a functioning Senate. And in that scenario, I think a whole bunch of factors could come together, including the kind of TikTok of the Texas Democrats having to go back for another special session and, you know, the sort of sense of an urgency. And you actually could, in a pared down bill, certainly see a mansion and a cinema commit to a pared down version of something around voting rights and maybe see a couple of Republicans come along the way. So I don't mean to sound like a Pollyanna, but I think that we're seeing the wheels moving really more than we have thus far this year. Good take. All right. Let's uh, talk just a little bit more about inflation to, to round this out because prices are generally rising across the economy. We don't really know yet how long these movements are going to last. Demand is exploding as the economy uh, reopens, recovers, and that's putting a strain on our supply chains and labor, shipping, really everything which is making prices go up. So the supply side of the economy basically is recovering slower than the demand side. And uh, Larry Summers, who we mentioned, Lucy just mentioned, is an economist, served as Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton, um, Director of National Economic Council under President Obama. He has been loudly cautioning Democrats about the risks of inflation, and he's given basically equal treatment to three possible outcomes. So the one in three chance of each of these things. One is that we will see double digit inflation like what we saw in the 70s. The the second one is the Fed hikes interest rates, which would stave off inflation, but also likely spur a recession. And the third option is everything's fine. Inflation settles and the economy continues to grow as as the supply side of the economy rebounds, which is just taking longer. So let's... um, Obviously, none of us are economists, so we can forego debate about economic theory. Um, But what I would really like to focus on is what happens if and when Americans believe inflation is going to be a problem politically. So, Lucy, how do you think that most Americans are thinking about inflation? You know, if if grocery stores uh, are getting more expensive. What's the risk that they blame President Biden or Democrats for overspending? Do you think this is a, or are we out of the, the, you know, you and I have, I think, cut our teeth in an era of campaigning when these kinds of like policy issues really mattered a lot. And, and I don't, I don't know that we're there anymore, especially if we're going to be fighting culture wars at the ballot box. Yeah. I don't think that there's necessarily a natural connection in people's minds to um, how much they're paying for their groceries to, uh, you know, the American Rescue Plan or uh, the passage of this reconciliation bill. I could be wrong about that. I think that I think that that would be a Republican talking point. Um, But as you say, the Republicans are just like so off on new, something new. So I don't, I, I could be wrong about that. I think that the, the, there was a really interesting report this morning about kind of looking at different income brackets and, and how kind of like core purchases. So like groceries, rent, utilities impact everyday Americans. And for some people at, at the kind of lower brackets, it's crazy. You can get to a point where they're spent, like all of those costs are like one point 
one sixth of sort of a whole, 16% more than just even like the money they have on hand, right? And so that really impacts those people. But on the other hand, those are also the same people who are most likely to be relieved of some of that burden by the passage of some of these kind of like safety net programs. So it's hard to say. I, Lene may feel differently. It's a good point, but it's also a question of whether or not they connect the policy to their own pocketbook and credit Democrats for giving that to them. Like, you know, the Affordable Care Act is a great example of this. Yeah. So. And Democrats aren't always great at selling the thing right. that we just gave the American people. Right. So we're trying to get better at that. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I do yeah. I do think, you know, two thoughts on this. Um, one is I think the question in the midterms and in every election for most voters is, is my life better than it was two years ago? Yeah. And here, I think the answer is going to be yes, because two years ago, we were locked in our houses. So, you know, I, th- I do think we've got a little yeah. bit of a built-in advantage yep. here because 2020 sucked. Yeah. And if the question is, you know, are you currently better right now than 2020? I think almost everybody would say yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I certainly would. So I think that um, that that's a little bit of a built-in advantage that we don't normally have in a midterm. And you should, and so, you should work that advantage. Yeah, and we, yeah. And we should work that advantage because if we don't, Kevin McCarthy, who's an insurrectionist, is, you know, has the gavel again in the in the House. So that's that's one thought. But I do think that um, the Republicans are certainly going to talk about this. And they and Democrats have had a historic trust gap on the economy. So we just did a poll um, looking at this exact question. And and it, it turns out, you know, it was true all of last year. People said that Trump was better on the economy than Biden, and they still voted for Biden because it turned out there was some other stuff that, you know, was was more important, including COVID. Um, but we but we haven't made that that up. We yeah. haven't made up that deficit. So um, so I do think Democrats need to be mindful of that and talk about the things that we are doing on the economy to make it better because Republicans are just more naturally trusted on that issue. But the poll actually found that Biden was 10 points more trusted than the Democratic Party. Wow! So he is seen as a good steward of the economy right now. Hopefully that continues into next year. And if that's true, we just need to make sure that Democrats down ballot get credit for that. Um, And so, you know, our, our advice was, that everybody should be calling themselves a Biden Democrat, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm, I'm running as a Biden yes. Democrat because yes. um, because you need that to rub off on you yes. in order to um, make the economic case to people. And our coalition is built in the suburbs now. This is where we get our votes from. And those folks are very tax sensitive. When I I spent most of 2020 down in Richmond and Abigail Spamberger's district is right outside um, there in one of the swing districts, she you know won by about seven thousand votes, and the attack ads were not on defund the police mostly; they were on taxes. Mm. <laughs> so I do think like suburban voters are super tax sensitive. Yeah. There's a reason that Biden has said in every single one of his um, conversations, nobody under four hundred thousand dollars a year is going to get their taxes raised, and yeah. we just need to keep saying that over and over again if we're going to appeal to them. <laughs> well said. Now that we're up to speed on three of the biggest stories of the week, wait, Britney Spears now gets a lawyer. Four of the biggest stories of the week. <laughs> what are you What are you both watching as we go into the next week, Lucy? Well, I mean, just, I was right about Britney, really. <laughs> so, um, Lucy and I are both soothsayers. Like, we're, <laughs> oh, who knew that Britney Spears would be the issue that brings people together? Um <laughs> No, uh, less cheery. 
the executive director of the Michigan Republican Party resigned this week. Why should you care? You should care because the reason he resigned is that he gave an interview to Tim Alberta. and he said in Politico, he said that Trump had no one to blame but himself for his loss in 2020. And in the hundred days before Trump lost, he hundred days before the election, he was just sort of like doing everything he could to make himself unelectable. Um, and that was just saying something that used to be normal, like, well, he wasn't, he didn't campaign so well. That means the guy is now persona non grata in Republican politics, right? So he's been forced out. This is a long time strategist. He's very involved in the Ruby. He was like, like well-known Republican operative. So that just shows you where the Republican party is going. And, and, and in the, in the um, backdrop of knowing that two thirds to three quarters of Republicans at any given time still believe that Biden is not the legitimate president right? It, it really shows you, I think, to kind of encapsulate everything we've talked about today, the Republican Party is just headed nowhere good. Someone yesterday tweeted, Jared Sexton, who's done a lot of work on this, said, I've been at this for years and few things get more and more glaringly obvious. The right is plunging into outright violent fascism, and it doesn't matter how much you're proven right. People are still going to choose to live in this delusion. All of this is to say these little episodes that seem small, like a state party ED being forced out, really underscore that we are not operating in a normal paradigm and we should approach every single one of these issues and ask Democrats to approach every single one of these issues with the presumption that the people on the other side of the aisle are not behaving as business as usual and Mm -hmm. Democrats can't either. Well, that's that's terrifying. Dire. (laughs) Thanks, Lucy. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) That's actually a really good segue to our Politicology Plus segment, which we'll get to in a second. Um, before we do, Lene, what do you got for us? So I have been watching a little thing called Title 42. I don't know if you've heard of this, but this is the provision that Trump used to shut down the borders during the pandemic. And uh, President Biden this week is about to take action to lift it. He's going to do it in a gradual way, um, but he's going to start letting asylum seekers who are petitioning for legal status in the United States to start doing that again. He's going to start with families and, you know, eventually roll it out to um, single adults as well. And that is going to be the Mm. only thing that Tucker Carlson and the Fox News crew talk about for the rest of time <laughs> because we are going to see the border border surge crisis, yep. all the things. We're going to see pictures of people coming into the country. There's still, you know, a lot of people that aren't vaccinated. There's it's it's a very fraught issue. And, you know, t- Title 42 is supposed to protect public health. That is, you know, that's why it was that's why that's why it exists. But obviously Trump did it because Stephen Miller was like, great, we can keep all immigrants out. Right. I mean, this was (laughs) not for public health reasons because COVID was already the United States was COVID central before he did it. So it wasn't like we were keeping COVID out, clearly. Um, But um, but now the public health reason is definitely not there. And we and we need to reopen our borders again and start reengaging in our laws that allow people to petition for asylum. But it's going to be very politically fraught. And I am 
concerned about um, you know, what that's going to take on in the right wing media. We've seen, um, you know, crazy attack ads um, in 2018 and, and other times around these issues. And I and I know that they're going to go back at it again. Does this just affect asylum seekers or refugees it, or both? It Well, what Trump did was keep everybody out. So Title right. 42 is just both basically like, refugees. yeah, right. like nobody can come in. Right, right. <laughs> and no immigration. Right, nothing. Uh, no nobody. immigrants. Lock it down. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we need to re-engage now because like that's not a sustainable yeah. thing in the future. Right. Um, and there's been a lot of pressure for Biden to do it earlier, but I think they know that it is going to be politically fraught. And so uh, yeah. they've waited until now, but um, it's about to happen. And so watch out Tucker Carlson. Oh, boy. Just what we need. Um, I've got something. Well, this is less what I'm watching and something that I'm laughing at because we all sort of need a, a laugh out of this long news week. So there's a federal judge on Tuesday who ended a years-long battle between Sasha Barone Cohen, <laughs> Borat fame, and former U.S. Senate candidate Roy Moore over a TV segment that the judge deemed clearly a joke. And the joke was in 2018 in this TV skit, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen posed as an anti-terrorism expert uh, with a wand that could be that that could detect sex offenders and pedophiles, which <laughs> which of course began beeping as he waved it over Roy Moore, who then sued for defamation over the implication that Moore was a pedophile. And uh, you know, defamation laws one, Roy Moore zero. Um, but this was particularly satisfying to me because I helped take down Roy Moore during his Senate bid the first time. Amazing. And, and so this was just like another reason for me to like smile, chuckle and like crisis averted in that one situation. But, um, you know, we can continue to joke about failed That's Senate candidate Roy Moore for that, being creepy, racist, homophobic, old man. He's the one that put the Ten <laughs> Commandments in the in his like yes. um, courtroom, yes. right? That's he's, like, this is the guy everybody yeah. will remember like him waving the tiny little, you know, man pistol that he yeah. <laughs> on right. the stage, remember walking around with this like oh, baby yeah. pistol. Love small. Um, <laughs> yeah, Love taking teens to malls. Incredible. I, yes. I have a I have a Sasha Baron Cohen story from the era. I'll save it. Oh my God. Save that for Politicology Plus. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, wow. that's for subscribers only. <laughs> that is for subscribers only. Before I let you go and we go into the green room, the secret place, uh, where can people find you on the internet? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and work and the effort that goes into every Politicology episode on the main feed. You can join Politicology Plus and gain access to hours of exclusive content to help you think more like a political strategist and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's bonus segment and much more at politicology.com slash plus. You can share this episode with one of your favorite friends, family, colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. You can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there. That helps us rise in the ranking and new people discover the show organically. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.